Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 26. Um, I'm here joined by Wolf Tyvee as always. Yeah, okay. And for this episode, we've recently uh, run into a new friend of ours in San Francisco, uh, Sean Pauly, who uh, spends a bunch of time in, in East Africa, uh, working in uh, finance and, and water arbitrage and all sorts of adventures otherwise. So Sean, thanks for coming on the show and, and uh, I can't wait to get started. Thank you for having me. So let's, uh, just for everyone to get acquainted, acquainted with you a little bit, why don't you tell the audience just a little bit about your, your background and, and how you got into East Africa in the first place. Yeah, so um, I started thinking about water basically as a tradable asset back when I was in, uh, back when I was in school. And I started looking at a bunch of ways of profiting from the ongoing drought in California uh, at the time. And one of the first things that everyone in water looks up is the cost of, is basically buying an old single hull oil tanker, gutting it, refitting it, new pumps, new pipes, new valves, and running it back and forth between Alaska and LA. And for reasons that I'll get into um, quickly, everyone discovers very, very, very quickly that uh, that's not a viable business. Um, ignoring capital costs, focusing just on the operating expenses, mainly fuel and staff, those came out to about 15 times higher than any potential revenues that could be generated from that project. So if you're listening and wondering if that's a good idea, it's not. Um, <laughs> I looked into buying up water rights west of the Mississippi and leasing water out to wealthy suburbs. They wanted green lawns or out to farmers, groups like that. But the income that I could generate relative to uh, the asset price was way out of whack. So decided not to do that. I looked into buying up farmland in, uh, up along the Mississippi Basin, growing water dense crops there, corn, rice, various fruits and veggies, things like that, and selling them off in more arid parts of the U.S. But um, farmland in the U.S. right now is, uh, is also pretty expensive. You're looking at about seven dollars to $10,000 an acre right now for, uh, for good quality farmland. And so if you're looking at a mid-sized uh, row crop farm, so a farm that's growing corn, soy, wheat, something like that, you're looking at a pretty significant chunk of change right out the bat just for the land. And um, that, of course, is ignoring the cost of any seed, fertilizer, equipment, all of that. Yeah, your operating expenses. Exactly. It's, it, that's ignoring all of the operating expenses that you need just to get this going. So I couldn't really do anything with water here in the U.S., I tried a couple of things in the Caribbean with pipelines, but um, couldn't get those going for various political reasons. Um, then I started looking further, further afield. And so I started looking for places that had cheap land, plenty of water over the next 10 to 15 years, uh, stable governments, and proximity to an arid or non-producing region. And the first place that popped up was Western Ukraine. Now, Western Ukraine is the... Ukraine as a whole is the, really the uh, breadbasket of Europe. Incredibly fertile land, great river right. system there. Um, and with climate change, actually, Ukraine is improving as a place for, uh, for agriculture. You have longer right. growing seasons there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just a much, much nicer environment to, uh, to farm in. Um, and then war with Russia happened. And as a general rule, I back out of countries when war with nuclear power happens. <laughs> yeah. That makes, good rule. Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. That's just a guideline I try to live by. Um, and the other place that I was really looking at was um, in East Africa, right around Lake Victoria. Um, there's plenty of water over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, 
where the Nile's not going to dry up. Um, and we're actually looking at, in many parts of Uganda, uh, increased rainfall. And so that's how I got over there. And basically, I uh, have been working on a maize milling and trading operation over there, um, supplying uh, the Kenyan Highlands and uh, some other group and some NGO groups in the area with um, with food that they can distribute. So the idea is basically there's some fertile area next to a next to an arid region. You grow water intensive crops like maize in the fertile region, and then you transport it to the, the non fertile region. Or it's like how yeah, exactly so it's basically working? you identify. So basically, water is um, an input cost, same as you know seed fertilizer, all right. of that. And so what you're looking to do is basically you try to find a place that has very, very cheap water and a place that has very expensive water, like the Kenyan Highlands, for instance, which are drying up at the moment due to climate change. Right. Um, and then basically there should be a price difference in a uh, secondary product, in this case, maize, right. um, that you can realize. And then, of course, if you just move the crop from point A to point B, there is... Um, there are arbitrage opportunities available there. Right, if you can move it more efficiently than the people. If you can who move it are. more efficiently than the people who currently are, if um, you have some advantage in terms of quality, uh, things like that, you can you can make some pretty good money there. Um, a lot of the opportunities over there right now are really just in drying and storage, um, since the drying and storage infrastructure is not that great at the moment, which is one of the reasons why there's a there's an aflatoxin issue mm-hmm. uh, with some of the maize over there. And it's why, if you look at the uh, World Food Program contracts, for instance, they actually specified that all of the maize that they buy needs to be tested for aflatoxin content, and it needs to be below a certain level before they'll buy it. Right. So you need to dry it out so it doesn't get the mold, basically. Exactly. So you need to basically buy it early on in the harvest season, dry it, and control humidity. And if you do that, you're going to be all set. Mm -hmm. So you've been doing that for a while, but recently getting out of it? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been been, uh, working on that for a little bit of time now. Um, started working on about two, two and a half years ago, something along those lines. Um, and for the past six to eight months, I've been working, uh, much more on a bank that I'm starting up in Rwanda to address a lot of the issues that I have with the East African financial system. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the financial system, your bank project, um, generally what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. So um, when you talk about the East African financial system, the first thing that you should really be thinking about is risk. Um, depositing money with a bank is a fairly risky affair. In because um, the bank might close down. Well, exactly. And if the bank closes down, you lose your money. Um, in East Africa, in the past two years, eleven banks have gone under. Um, depositors have not necessarily lost their money in all cases. Um, so Do they have some, something equivalent to FDIC. They do have that, but it doesn't cover that much. Right. In Uganda, for instance, it covers up to about three thousand dollars in local currency. Okay. Um, which is so, which is what in a, in USD? Well, it's three thousand USD, but converted into local yeah. currency. Oh, I yeah. see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's not you're not really that protected by the deposit insurance itself. Yeah. Um, and basically, your hope if your bank goes under is that the central bank is able to negotiate a sale to another bank. Uh, which is what happened when Crane Bank went under. Um, the Bank of Uganda negotiated the sale of its assets to uh, DFCU, which saved its depositors in that particular case. Right. But that's by no means guaranteed, and mm-hmm. it's something that everyone always has in the back of their mind when you leave money in a bank. Um, it's one of the reasons why the first purchase, the first purchase for most businesses over there, is a safe. Right. You don't really trust the banks. They can go under, and if it goes under, 
you're screwed. Interesting, yeah. This so why why are there? I mean, the banks in North America um, and even in large parts of Europe are a lot more stable. So what's the what's generating these bank runs mm-hmm. in these places? I wouldn't say that the failures have mostly been a result of bank runs. It's mostly well, it's bad loans that they've been issuing in large part. And these are caused by a number of different issues. So the first one is data collection is extremely difficult for banks over there. Banks over here actually have a lot of insight into whether or not a business is going to be a safe uh, safe one to lend to. They have a lot of insight into how much pers- how much income a person has when they're lending the money to buy a house. Right, right. Um, so a lot of that stuff's on the books. Yeah, they have a ton of data on people and businesses already that they can look back on and use to assess the risk of any particular loan and use that in pricing. But over in East Africa, it's a cash-based economy by and large. Um, so there's no Equifax because there's no credit cards. There is, but it's not really all that useful. I see. Yeah. Um, so you can get a credit score, but it, it, the value of it is very questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this economy, basically, a lot of the banks are basing their lending decisions on how much, how much a, uh, how much a store or a restaurant or business is depositing in their bank accounts. Basically, that's that's really their source of insight right. uh, into it. Now, this can be skewed by, say, if they borrow money from friends, from friends and family, deposit that into the bank account with the hopes of getting a larger loan. Right. Um, they can lie about their income. They can. There are all sorts of ways that it can, that data yeah, collection right. can uh, can go south, and you know. So you have a higher default rate. Basically, a lot of the. You just can't know who you're lending to, so you end up lending to a bunch of people who can't pay it back. Exactly. So the uh, the overall default rate over there in East Africa, it's called the NPL rate, non-performing loan rate, is about six seven percent, which is actually higher than U.S. subprime. Ouch. Yeah. So yeah, U.S. subprime has a lower default rate than the East African banks experience. Now that leads into another point as well. Banks are extremely extremely expensive over there. Um, you're looking at typically about 20 to 24% interest. Um, if you're borrowing money from a bank, that's, <laughs> that adds up very, very quickly. And then they charge fees on top of that. You're looking at $15 per month per account. Um, you're looking at fees for withdrawing money, for looking at how much money you have in your account. Mm-hmm. Every little thing you do, they're going to charge you a fee for. Yeah. Um, it's expensive. It's risky. It's just, it doesn't work well for anyone. And all of this is that whether it's the interest rate or the fees is, is precisely because of the default rate. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very, very, it's the high default rate is the main driver of the, uh, of the high interest rates over there and contract enforceability as well. In many of these countries, it's a bit more difficult. If a bank goes under, the person might try to, you know, take what little is left of the money and, you know, try to start something up new with it instead of, paying back what they own. Right, um, yeah. So, and finding that person, getting them to actually pay it back and getting the courts to enforce it can be difficult in some of these countries. It's much less difficult in Rwanda than it is in, say, Uganda, but it is. Right. it can still be an issue in some of, in, uh, some of these areas. Yeah, so, so what were the specific issues that kind of you were running into personally that motivated you to kind of go in and disrupt that business? Extraordinarily poor customer service, extraordinarily high fees, extraordinarily high interest rates, 
extraordinarily high bank failure rates just right. okay <laughs> stuff, yeah. stuff you don't want to deal with as a customer <laughs> exactly um you know as as a depositor you don't want to deal with any of that you just want a safe place to store your money a safe uh cheap way to send money around that's that's really what you're looking for right um and you know preferably a cheap way to borrow as well but <laughs> that that comes with time yeah. and with the uh, better data and all of the things that i was mentioning before mm-hmm yeah, so you decided to then get into the bank business, basically, and so you're starting a bank? Yeah, so I spent a pretty good amount of time researching and uh, just looking into it, trying to learn as much as I possibly could about uh, what the banks were doing, what their possible failures were, and some ways of addressing it. Um, and so what I'm doing right now is kind of a, well, the one-sentence pitch is narrow bank plus square capital for Africa. Um, the narrow bank aspect, all of our deposits are kept in the central bank and in same currency government debt, mm-hmm. eliminating deposit risk. There's still inflation risk and all of that, but that's present whether or not you actually choose to deposit money in a bank. So mm-hmm. the actual deposit risk itself is completely eliminated. Mm-hmm. All of the internal bank transfers are completely free. So you can, if you want to go to a restaurant, both you and the restaurant are bank depositors. You can pay the restaurant for free from your mobile app. Uh, you can use the SMS wallet, send the money that way. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very easy. Um, now all of a sudden you don't need to carry around as much cash anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need to go to the bank as often. You don't need to wait in 30, 40 minute lines just to get money out of your account. Right. Um, just trying to make things as easy and simple and cheap as possible for people. The infrastructure for that app-based payment, like, you know, say you have you have the mm-hmm. bank and you have the app, how do you pay someone who doesn't? Uh, or if you just walk into a random shop, how, how likely is it that you're going to be able to pay them using those kind of methods? So um, you can actually, so with the SMS wallet, you can pay anyone in the country Interesting. for yeah. 10 cents as long as they have a cell phone. Right. Um, and pretty much everyone has a cell phone. Great. Um, doesn't need to be a smartphone or anything like that. For the mobile app payment itself, it would need to be a smart. They would need to be a bank depositor and they would need to have a smartphone as well. Okay, so it's, so it's within the, the SMS, bank. Yeah, but for the SMS wallet, you do not need to be a bank depositor. You right. just need to have a cell phone. Um, so the SMS wallet needs to work through the various mobile carriers' um, uh, API systems and okay. basically... It's a lot easier over here in the United States with some of the <laughs> with some of the SMS infrastructure that's over here than it is over there, but you need to work directly with the carriers to send text messages. But basically, what it is is they text the bank, mm-hmm. we update their wallet, and we update the recipient's wallet, and then we send a text back to both of them confirming what's happened. Right, um, and that's the very very short version of how it works mm-hmm. there are some security things that go into it as well there's pen numbers and all, yeah, yeah, and all that but that's that's the core concept so okay so you talked about doing this this thing where you're working directly with the central bank and no fees uh move money around for free so why is it that you're able to do this that other people have not been able to do this mm-hmm. why, why is it what's your edge that that's enabling this to happen so basically our compliance costs are zero um, with this structure, we are automatically compliant with all of the uh, regula- with pretty much every regulation that um, the central banks over there and that uh, the parliaments over there set. Um, we don't need to maintain an army of lawyers or finance or uh, mm-hmm. finance uh, people. Because, well, from the depositor side, they're not actually taking on any risk. And, and this is because you're going directly with the central bank. 
The central bank and in same currency government debt, yeah. yeah. So basically, it just simplifies a lot of the back office stuff. We have fewer branch offices than the other banks will because we have a much heavier reliance on mobile banking. Right. Um, so we're able to cut down a lot of the costs that the other banks have. Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of this, and so I expect that the narrow bank should cover pretty much all of our expenses. It should basically, that should get us to break even. Yeah. But that's not really where we're going to be making our money. Where we're going to be making our money is based off of the payment data that we were just talking about. We're going to be making loans to businesses based off of that. Right, because you're going to have better insight into how money is moving around, who has what money, who's spending what money. Exactly. So we should have some much, much better insight into these businesses than the traditional banks do have. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some additional security measures that we're going to put in place so that people don't fudge the numbers at their stores a little bit right. and things like that. Um, send people out to verify numbers. Um, there, there are some additional things that we're going to be doing. We can lend to people in groups and then use the group to help uh, enforce the contract internally. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few things that we can do in that space as well, but the core concept is using the data to basically minimize the risk of, uh, of lending out. That's, right. that's basically what it is. And you're looking at, again, 20 to 24% interest on those loans um, over time. As we continue to build up data, that percent should decrease, mm-hmm. but initially it's going to be market rate loans for, for most of these companies. And because, of course, we're processing the payments, we can take a cut of revenue to guarantee repayment mm-hmm. or guarantee at least partial repayment. So are you relying on, on uh, local software developers or drawing from the U.S.? or Both. Both, Both. yeah. Um, I don't really care where someone is from as long as, <laughs> as, long sure. as they can actually uh, write the software. Um, there, Kigali actually has a booming software development scene right now. Um, there's a makerspace that was bo- a big little makerspace that was just opened up in uh, Kigali. Um, Microsoft has a pretty big investment there in um, software training and all of that. Um, a lot of tech companies are setting up shop in Rwanda right now. There's plenty mm-hmm. of development talent there locally. Um, I expect we're going to be importing some as well as time goes on, but Initially, at least, there's plenty of development talent there. Okay, cool. You're able to make it work. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, just one sort of more question on the on the bank project. Um, what What's the barrier that, like, keeps another bank from, like, once once sort of your model is proven, why, why can't they just jump in and do the same thing? I mean, once we're up and running, the main barrier to entry is the payment network itself and the network okay. effects that that generates. Okay. Um, that's the main barrier um, to any competitor bank. Right, cool. Yeah. And switching costs, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe, um, I guess now would be a good time to do an overview of generally East African financial situation, financial system, and we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but maybe like some more of the um, expand from, the, from there, basically like what um, is there, are there interesting developments that are happening? Uh, is it uh, like some governments better than others? Like which, which ones are really working well? Where are things kind of like not progressing? Just generally the picture here, can we get a... Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you're looking at Africa as a whole, Rwanda and Botswana are probably the two of the best countries when it comes to contract enforcement. And contract yeah. enforcement is one of the big, big sources of risk that causes that high interest rate. Yeah, we've, we've had an article on Botswana's anomalously good government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Samo, uh, Samo wrote a fantastic piece on that. Um, 
But uh, contract enforcement is an area that many, many of these uh, countries are improving upon, and I would expect that interest rates should drop as contract enforcement improves. Um, it's a larger issue in some countries, Nigeria, for instance, uh, than in Rwanda, Botswana, but um, that that's one area that uh, that can use a good amount of work uh, right. around the continent. Yeah, just like so when a bank fails, like actually being able to get what remains of the money back, uh, like being able to sue them or like... Yeah, when a bit when a business goes under, being able to recover assets easily that's that's going to be that's going to be huge. Yeah, um, that's that's one thing that a lot of African countries are spending a lot of time and resources working on. It's right. one thing that they're improving upon. What's um, the barrier to that? Resource allocation, mainly. That's okay. they need to allocate more resources to the courts. Right. Um, they need to have better identity management systems in place. Right. Um, so in a lot of these countries, it's not uncommon for people to have several names um right okay and (laughs) and well which whichever one they use on their id card might not be the one that they use in another city but basically having a better identity management system a better way of tracking people um over here in the u.s we largely use social security numbers for this right um which is far from an ideal system Mm -hmm. um but it does help most keep track of, of it. Yeah. It, it does most of the work as far as keeping track of who has what debt and, um, and all of numerous, numerous issues with the, uh, with the credit system here in the U S. Um, Rwanda has done a lot of great, great work on that. Um, Uganda is rolling out a new ID management system. Kenya is rolling one out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are kinks in both of those that need to be worked out, but they are rolling out new, uh, new identity management systems. Um, in several several countries around the continent, uh, and that should help out quite a bit. Um, one thing that I am thinking about a lot in the short term is also a real estate bubble that you can see happening in East Africa. Oh, interesting. In Kenya, in particular, it's pretty bad, um, and it looks well. I don't want to say ready to pop because, uh, well, the market. Yeah, the market. Can yeah, the market can keep going a lot longer than I think they will. Um, but there is a real estate bubble there. Um, for instance, I own a little piece of land outside of a town called Jinja in Uganda. The value of that land has doubled in the past year. Doubled. Wow. Yeah, doubled <laughs> in the past year. So now I'm trying to. I'm actually selling it now. <laughs> but uh, that's that's not unheard of. <laughs> right. That's yeah. I'm I'm far from unique in that uh, in that scenario. Um, a lot of banks over there are incredibly overexposed to the real estate sector and Mm -hmm. it wouldn't necessarily even take prices dropping for, uh, the bank's, uh, real estate positions to go under. It could just take, uh, the growth rate slowing down, uh, to cause a lot of their positions to, um, essentially liquidate. Yeah. People would have to liquidate those, those real estate holders. Exactly. If you can't pay 20, 24% interest because it's now growing at 10% a year, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's generating this kind of demand in the first place? Yeah. Where's the bubble coming from? So land over there, I do expect that the value of land and the value of real estate over there is going to improve significantly over the long run. I yeah, think that this is a short term bubble that a lot of these banks are overexposed to. Um, but the reason for that, for the increase in land value comes from the very high birth rates and high urbanization rates over there. Mm-hmm. So in Uganda, for instance, you're looking at about seven kids per woman right. over there, wow. which is 
uh, it's it's a little bit above what the U.S. is at right now. I think the U.S. is <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just uh, yeah. Um, I think it's something three times higher than the U.S.'s yeah. rate. Something something like that. Um, I think it would be more it, than three times. Yes. U.S. is below two. More than three times, then. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the numbers work out to be, yeah. it's it's higher. Um, and then you're looking at very high urbanization rates as well. People are leaving the villages and coming into the cities where there are more jobs. They mm. pay better. Um, you have better access to healthcare, police, fire, all of the standard services that you mm-hmm. uh, expect. Um, and if you're going from a village where you're looking at median annual income of say hundred dollars a year and you go work in a factory in the city that pays seven, $800 a year, you've just octupled your income. That's a right. huge improvement in well-being. Right there. Right. Um, so just like San Francisco, they put a housing crisis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if San Francisco addressed that housing crisis, the U.S. as a whole would be a lot better off because now more people can move here and can take advantage of the great yeah, jobs. Yeah. No, we've we've beaten this drum before. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, I, I doubt that I'm covering any new ground when uh, when it comes to shitting on San Francisco. The people here shit on San Francisco very well. Quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, so what are, what's like in the capital of, of Uganda, what, what is average land value? That varies a lot depending on the neighborhood. Um, and so when you're looking at uh, land in the slums, for instance, that land tends not to be titled. So it's very, very difficult to value that. Um, but it can range from, do they sell it? They do, yeah. They do sell. It. You can sell just, untitled just land. Okay. You can sell untitled land. It, that just means that it's not registered with the government and that there's yeah. no clear established owner of that land. Right. So um, the police and courts have a mess to get through if that ever reaches it, the police and the courts. Exactly. It's it's much more difficult to actually enforce any land sale contracts with that, and that's another issue as well. Partic- mainly in the uh, rural areas, but it is somewhat in uh, in the urban areas as well. Um. But you you have a title but, yeah. with your land. Yeah, I have. Uh, it's titled land right along the main highway. Um, so that I, I don't do anything unless the land is titled. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I wouldn't want to deal with that. Yeah, it's it's a colossal pain in the ass if if it's not titled. But um, so on the high end in Kampala, you can see New York prices in some of the high end areas in terms of per acre. Um, wow. Well, I, I wouldn't say New York. That's something that they say over there. But you, I've seen an acre of land in one of the high-end areas go for a million or so. Um, okay. And in some of the low-end areas, well, on the low end, it can get extremely low. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I guess the... Five, ten grand for a small plot. Not yeah. very much. But, but you, can, you can probably even get it for less than that. Mostly you trust when you're, you know, you've got your plot of land... When you sell it back, there won't be any problems. When you, if you were to invest in more, there wouldn't be any problems. What, what's the legal situation like, or the the you know expectation of return for investors? Is it reasonably secure in places like Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda? Uh, so Rwanda actually has a fantastic title management system. Uh, GPS coordinates on the titles. If you go there, um, the they have every everything registered. It seems like um, in Uganda you're re- you're pretty reasonably secured. Um, there can be some issues with squatters if you're say renting the property out. Right. Um, and in Kenya, 
it's pretty much the same as uh, Uganda. There, there are some issues with squatters' rights and things like that that pop up, um, but you can be fairly secure in uh, in your property over there. Yeah. So Rwanda is the big exception, to, or sort of more exceptional as compared to the other other governments in the area, um, and it's. Um, I guess they're sort of following the, the Singapore of Africa model, or they're trying to, though they're landlocked. So can, can you tell us a bit about how that works and what's going on there? Why is it working? Yeah, so um, Rwanda, it markets itself as the Singapore of Africa. If you're coming to Africa, you want to do business, come to Rwanda. Um, and it's it's more than a marketing slogan, really. Um, they've wholesale copied a lot of uh, the laws and policies of the government of Singapore. Right. Um, and just to give an example here, um, Qatar Airways recently bought a 60% stake in Rwanda Air, and mm-hmm. they're now renovating and expanding Kigali Airport. Mm-hmm. Rwanda does not have access to the sea. It can't have a seaport or anything like that. And that the access to the sea is one of the big reasons why Singapore became as wealthy as it has. Yeah. It's well, a massive not, logistics hub. Not just anywhere in the sea. It's right on that. It's right on that main. Yeah, it's right on that main shipping route. Yeah. Um, so Rwanda doesn't have access to the sea, so it can't, it obviously cannot copy that. But what it can do is it has a very nice central location in Africa. And mm-hmm. what they're working on becoming is they're working on becoming an air logistics hub. And the expansion of Kigali Airport should help out a lot with that. It should help to bring in right. a lot of new tourists, a lot of new business. And it should help just um, as far as uh, warehousing and logistics operation uh, goes, it should help out a lot with all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've copied to Singapore in so many ways, titles, contracts, everything is, if you're dealing with the government over in Rwanda, it's very, it's much easier to do than mm-hmm. elsewhere in the continent. Um, if I want to go in and set up a company in Rwanda, uh, I fly into the airport, I can get uh, the company incorporated same day and I can get the really? same day. Yeah. Is, wow. this, is this online or do you have to go in? You have to go in. You got to sign papers and all that. Got but, it. Um, I mean, basically, you can go in and you can get that all taken care of right away. It takes a few hours for things to process through, but it's it's oh, extremely that's pretty, extreme. no, that's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. very it's very very quick though. Um, and then you can get your uh, work visa right after that. It's a few hundred bucks to get your work visa as a director in a company. Okay. It's very very manageable. And if you're looking to invest over there, they've tried to make the process as simple and easy right. as possible. Yeah. They also just rolled out a new online platform. It's kind of um, similar to, it looks like it's kind of uh, modeling itself after Estonia's online system, right? Where you have access to all of the on all of the government services online. Uh, you can vote. You can. Uh, they have the title registry. They have all of that online. Um, they're rolling out something kind of similar to that. There, it's very early stages. Um, it obviously doesn't have anywhere near the number of features that Estonia's system does have. Um, but they're they're working on making the Rwandan government as, as accessible as possible, as easily as possible. Right. Um, and that right there is it permeates everything. They're just trying yeah. to make things easier, yeah, faster, they're, they're, they're so doing you can a good actually. Job. They're, yeah. they're wiping out corruption. Like they don't have a lot of issues with that. You don't have any issues. They're with very that. competent in the in sort of their execution of a good strategy. Mm-hmm. So so let's say you you fly in. You're probably on a tourist visa at first. Mm-hmm. Then you can go to uh, the, I guess, corporate registry and, mm-hmm. and register a company. Uh, and then how does the work visa process work? 
So basically with that, um, they actually have a one-stop shop, so you can take care of it all in the same building. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. So <laughs> we're making it convenient. Yeah. It's like you know, one of those duty-free stores at the airport. Here, set up a company. Set up a company. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so when you fly in, um, it has been in the past a fifty-dollar uh, tourist visa, valid for ninety days. So if you want to go see the gorillas, if you want to go stop by Lake Kivu, do all of the tourist right. stuff, you can do that, and then meander over to the one-stop shop and you know actually set up shop. Um, very, very easy, very, very quick. Yeah, so this is really different from a lot of the other countries, especially like in West Africa, where I've heard things like, you know, incorporating a company can take like a It can take significant extraordinarily long time. Yeah. Well, this is still the case even in parts of Europe. I know if you incorporate in Portugal, they mandate that you have an accountant and you have to have certain capitalization, but... Is there any capitalization requirement here? So there is if you want to hire additional foreigners. Sure. You need to right. have a minimum of $100,000 invested in the company. Um, but if once you hit that figure, you can employ whatever other foreigners you want to. Yeah, and that's just to weed out the like shell companies for employing foreigners, basically, rather than... Basically. Right. Like, because yeah. as soon as you're it's hiring foreigners... Bar. It's a seriousness bar. Yeah, as soon as you're hiring foreigners, I mean, you, you probably have 100K at that point. Yeah, if you're not going to be able to afford foreigners if you don't have 100K. Yeah. Right. That's just... <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's... That's a pretty low bar. Um, it's one that most people should be able to meet mm-hmm. um, if they are looking to hire foreigners. Again, there's a lot of local talent available. Um, so that's that's something that most most people should be able to clear. So it sounds like a general, like a pretty good base for kind of exploring the frontier over there and lots of ex- opportunity happening. If you're looking to set up a services company or a software company, yeah. Rwanda is a great place to um, set up shop if you're looking yeah. to start selling throughout Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite so good for manufacturing because of the aforementioned lack of uh, lack of right. water access. Yeah. Are they um, doing anything about that with ground transportation? Like I know the roads in some of those areas are not that great. Are they working on roads? There's a rail line railways? being built through uh, Tanzania right now. Right. And the SGR line through Kenya is supposed to eventually reach Kigali, but the mm-hmm. SGR line in Kenya is, its expansion is on hold for the moment. Right. Um, the Tanzania line though, they just signed the Rwandan and Tanzanian governments just signed a new debt deal to, um, refinance and develop that line all the way out to Kigali. And that should really help to drive the cost of uh, shipments down. Um, just to give you guys an idea of what it costs right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what it costs to get a container from the port of Oakland here to, uh, Berkeley, probably nothing, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would. I would imagine it's going to be like transaction costs mostly. Pretty much, yeah. I, or, you know, say from here to somewhere in inland California or Nevada, it, yeah, it, it's still probably not that much. I don't know what yeah. it is. I don't have U.S. figures. But for if you're looking to transport a container to Kigali, you're looking at about 4500 to $5,000 for the transportation of that container. That is extremely, extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking to transport a container to Lusaka in Zambia, for instance, mm-hmm. from the coast, Lusaka is also another inland country, or Zambia is also another mm-hmm. inland country, um, it'll cost about $2,000 to get it to Lusaka. And it's not, there's not really a significant difference in distance between the, right. the two. Um, it, 
And so you're looking at about $2,500 to $3,000 more to shift something to Kigali. And that that just doesn't make sense. But this rail yeah. line should help alleviate a lot of that. Yeah, totally. Shipping containers on rail is trivial. Exactly. Exactly. So we've covered company registration, but what if you do the equivalent except for property? Let's say you want to invest in property there. Mm-hmm. How would that process work in, in Rwanda? So foreigners cannot actually own property right. in Sensible. every African country with the exception of Somaliland. Um, so in every country, every African country with the exception of Somaliland, you cannot own land. What you can have is you can have a 99 year lease, right? Yeah. Um, which is pretty much just as good. Yeah. It means that after you die, it reverts back to the state, but you know, up until then you're, you're golden. You can do whatever you want to with it. Um, so if you want to buy land, you, uh, find the owner of the land, you send over the money to them, you sign the contract itself. Um, and then you need to take that over to the land registry and you need some verifying documents from the seller of the land, basically just to confirm that they did in fact sell you the land. If it is a company selling the land, all of the directors need to sign off. There needs to be a board resolution for it. Mm -hmm. Um, but once you get all of that taken care of, you just take it over to the land registry, have the, uh, title registered in your name as a 99 year lease. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you get a nice freshly, uh, leasehold title. Interesting. So you can buy land that's sort of on the market there as land and convert it into a 99-year lease as far as the government's concerned. Yeah, so you get okay. you get a leasehold title over okay, there. Cool. Um, there's, so in Uganda, there, in Uganda, there's freehold titles, which is where the person owns it outright. Right. As a foreigner, you can't get that. Yeah, no um, but if you marry a Ugandan woman or a Ugandan man, they can hold the title. Um, they can yeah. actually hold the freehold title. Um, there's leasehold, which is what foreigners have access to. There's Milo land, which is kind of a leftover from the British colonial days. This is land that the British government handed out to various people who assisted them mm-hmm. in uh, Uganda. And then there's untitled land. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically of those, leasehold is what the foreigners can get and what mm-hmm. the foreigners can actually have access to. Um, but relatively simple process for, for all mm-hmm. of that. Um, obviously same as over here, you should get a lawyer involved to, <laughs> to handle the contract, to verify that this person does actually own the land to right. investigate everything properly. But once you have that registration is simple process. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, back to the, the transportation stuff, the, the infrastructure that I'm kind of interested in a lot of that um, the financing from that, some of that's coming from the Chinese, right? Like the, the Chinese doing a lot of investment in East Africa, part of their kind of geopolitical ambitions. Yeah. So the, um, the Chinese are fairly aggressive. They're rolling it back somewhat in, uh, lending money to African governments. So they recently actually cut off the uh, Kenyan government from additional debt, but they are lending fairly aggressively elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, these are pretty much entirely infrastructure projects. So, uh, roads, sewage, rail, electrical systems, things of that nature. The Chinese are one of the uh, largest financiers of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally there are some nasty riders in the contract as is, uh, the case in Kenya with the, uh, the SGR contract, mm-hmm. but by and large it's fairly comparable to most other debt deals. Um, it's really buying influence in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, with these with these various governments, and a large part of the reason why the Chinese are able to do that is because these governments cannot actually mobilize enough local debt yeah. to finance these mm-hmm. things themselves. 
you know, if you have seven kids per woman, you need a lot of additional infrastructure there just to support that population, just to support all this mm-hmm. new construction, new roads, new rail. Well, yeah, well, plus the, the economic The sewage right? and all of the electrical systems. Yeah, there's a, you need to borrow a ton of money to finance all of that development. Yeah. Um, and there's no real way to go around that. Um, it's one of the reasons why African countries actually tend to have lower, uh, lower debt ratings. Um, than well-developed countries just because they have to borrow so much more. Because they're doing so much. Exactly. Yeah. Their population growth is so high, you just need to borrow more to invest. Yeah. Um, and then they occasionally mismanage a project. and they it, That happens occasionally, but it happens much more if you're a country named Argentina than it does anywhere <laughs> sure. in Africa. Yeah. Um, Argentina has its own problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Yeah, so basically they, they need to find a way to mobilize debt much more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that my bank is actually helping them out with. Um, we should be able to mobilize a pretty significant amount of debt and either refinance some of the expensive foreign debt, um, which has a which should also help to address some, uh, some of the Forex rate issues over there. Um, and it should help them just to develop mm-hmm. their infrastructure. A bit more quickly. Yeah, so can we get a little bit more into like what the Chinese are actually getting out of that? Like, so the, the case for mm. the, the African governments, it's pretty obvious that so we can get into like why they're not being able to take debt from the United States, for example. But um, what are the Chinese getting out of this? Because it's like, okay, they're, they're, uh, they're getting, I guess, development of these countries. They're getting influence in the countries. In some cases, what they're, are they actually they're, getting they're out repossessing of it? some of the projects. Mm-hmm. Um, what... Like, what's their strategic play, basically? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why are the Chinese doing this? So, um, a lot of it is uh, they're building out this infrastructure to facilitate the delivery of various raw materials to, uh, back to China um, and to help secure the delivery of those materials back to China. Right. Um, so, for instance, just talking about delivery of, say, oil and goods to Europe, the Chinese Navy recently opened up a naval base in uh, Djibouti. Yeah. Um, they are heavily involved in cobalt projects in Congo as mm-hmm. well, um, which is cobalt's really more sort of a side project from copper. They're involved in copper and cobalt, but cobalt's the really hot topic nowadays here in the right. U.S. With since it goes into everyone's phones, um, they have one of the largest uranium mines in the world in Namibia. Right. Um, but it's primarily involvement in extractive industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're Did starting. You- yeah, to have basically secure access to these natural exactly. resources that they need. Exactly. So there's some investment in some oil projects, uh, mining projects, things of that nature. Um, some of the Middle Eastern governments are taking advantage of the Chinese infrastructure build-out and are buying up big tracts of land for agriculture, uh, for agricultural investment. Um, the Saudis actually, there was a Saudi prince who recently got a very large uh, chunk of land in Ethiopia Hmm. um, to grow food there and ship it back to Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, But it's primarily about resource extraction and access to these resources. That's that's really the main thing that they're buying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why isn't the U.S. doing a similar play? There are some legal difficulties that U.S. firms face in um, some African countries. Um, the FCPA makes things a bit more difficult. The FCPA is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, for those who are not familiar with it. Um, that makes it a bit more difficult for them to work in certain countries over there. Um, so that's, that's like if you lend money to the wrong guy and he turns out to be involved in some corruption you get hit with that as well. It's basically if um, you or anyone underneath you 
makes a payment to a government official that results in a business advantage for your company, you can be penalized for that up to and including prison time. Right. And, and underneath you includes investment. Underneath you includes consultants. It includes contractors. It includes everyone. So that's not just in your own company, though, but in companies you're investing in. Or- companies that you... Uh, purchase goods from companies that you purchase services from company yeah, it goes yeah. all down the line oh man yeah, yeah so makes, so <laughs> like in a country basically where you know there is some level of corruption that means that it's very difficult you need to, to run a very clean ship you need to run i mean very, that's very almost that's a, but that what you're describing is is an almost impossible barrier to surmount you just have to go in assuming that you're going to get hit yes and no um the way that it typically works, so if you look at, for instance, the oil majors, um, companies like Shell, um, for in- Shell, ExxonMobil, for instance, uh, they don't really seem to have many, many issues with it. They run a very, very clean, tight ship. Um, and a lot of the ways that they do this is basically just by providing a service that no one else can. In the case of the oil majors, it's the fact that no one else has the technical expertise to do to take on a lot of the oil projects that they are, mm-hmm. so they get a free hand from the government. Um, but the FCPA has limited a lot of American investment in mm-hmm. not only in you know government debt, but it's limited a lot of private uh, investment as well. Um, there was Nestle, actually, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, they were looking into setting up a baby formula factory in Kenya a while ago. Right. And um, corruption issues prevented that from happening. Yeah. Um, but Not, not that in the sense that it was blocked on the African end, but it was blocked on the American end. Well, it was kind of blocked on both ends. Oh, okay. Really. But... Um, and this is before even any penalties kicked in. They just did due diligence and decided that it wasn't going to work out. It, well, there's a, there's a longer story there. Um, but it's... The FCPA and its enforcement has killed a lot of... Uh, it's significantly limited American investment in African countries. Sure. It's had a significant negative effect on that. Yeah, so I think that gives us a pretty good kind of that's a good view of all the stuff that you're in and, and that sort of surrounding area. I'm curious whether there's any particularly interesting anecdotes or stories that, that, uh, that kind of put us on the ground a little bit. <laughs> like what kind of adventures do you get into? Oh, I, I don't know about that, but, um, no, I mean, if you, okay. <laughs> if you do, if, uh, if your it's listeners want to boring business, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it's I not, business is exciting. it's usual to me, but <laughs> if your visitors want to go over there and do, uh, there's a lot of opportunities in tourism over there, and it's a great place to be a tourist. Um, so if you look at Rwanda and Uganda, um, you, half the mountain gorillas in the world are in those two countries right there. Right, yeah. Um, so if you want to see it, go to either Rwanda, go to Uganda. Um, you pay a fee, you go in, you hike the park for the day. You'll see the gorillas, they're right there off the trail. Mm-hmm. Um if you want to go whitewater rafting, Jinji, Uganda is a fantastic place for that. Although my understanding is actually that recently it's kind of died down a bit with a new hydroelectric dam that has been built. Um, but right, yeah. the, the, uh, the whitewater rafting industry is pretty resilient, so I'm sure they'll, they'll find a way to they'll pop back up. Yeah. yeah, they'll, they'll work around it. Um, if you head up to Murchison Falls National Park in, uh, in Northern Uganda, there's hippos, giraffes, elephants, tons and tons and tons of, uh, great things to see up there. Um, I think it's always just great for, (laughs) for people to come over, visit, see the wildlife, Mm -hmm. uh, enjoy the touristy things that are over there. 
I don't know if those are the kind of anecdotes that you're looking no, for. No, I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, like, what is it like kind of doing the business that you do and what are the, what are the situations you run into and like, because I, I imagine yeah. Africa is quite different from the experience that most of us have. Okay, in the yeah. United so looking, States, looking right? more at uh, business anecdotes, it's kind of a, there are some things that you do over here that you cannot do over there. For instance, extending credit to your customers. This goes back to the, um, this goes back to the contract enforcement bit from earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, if you own a factory selling shoes or whatnot, yeah. and you're selling to a store that wants to buy shoes, over here you typically extend them credit and you say, okay, you need to pay us back within 30 days. Right. Over there it's cash up front or you get nothing. Right. And a lot of people will try to work around that and negotiate with you on that. but Just because you're going to get scammed if you don't. You are going to get scammed. You are going to get screwed if you extend credit like that. Right. Um, enforcing those contracts is going to be a pain in the ass. It's going to be very difficult. You're going to spend a pretty good amount of time in court just enforcing that agreement. Right. And it's not worth it. Just cash only, keep things simple, you know, remove as much headache as possible. Um, as much as you can as well. Just try to get things done, uh, via software. The less, um, I guess I would say the less reliance you have on outside contractors, the better off you are. Yeah. Um, for a lot of these tasks. Again, it's yeah, just again, too much like contracting for too much headache. Too yeah. much headache. Um, a lot of what you do over there is really just trying to minimize headaches. Um, right. Keep things simple for yourself inside the company. Um, implement your own accounting systems. Make sure everything is nice and clean. Make sure you do as much as possible in house. Right. Yeah. That's that's the big thing. Hiring people is pretty tough over there as well, just because r- references are a bit more difficult over there than they are over here. Right. Yeah. 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 You don't know who you're getting. Yeah. Um, and this is well, this is a particularly an issue as a foreigner coming in. Um, you don't have the connections that you would uh, that you would have if you grew up over there, and you know you've known these people since you were a kid. Right. Um, for a lot of the local businesses, this is not anywhere near as much of an issue as it right. would be for me or you right. um, setting something up over there. So I want to go back uh, to discussing Rwanda's government a little bit. Do the surrounding African countries view it as sort of a, a model to follow or are they not big fans of, of this sort of move to a more Singapore-like structure? So a lot of the people in the surrounding countries uh, have uh, fairly positive views on it. Um, there's no corruption, no crime. Um, they've eliminated a lot of the negative aspects that you might have to that you might have to deal with in uh, in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they try as much as possible to eliminate the headache that you have to deal with with government. There's still there's always some there's always some yeah. dealing with the government, um, but as much as possible they've tried to improve on. A lot of these, uh, a lot of the provisioning of government services. Yeah. Um, so I'd say with the people, it's fairly popular around uh, around East Africa. There's a lot of uh, there are a lot of people who move to Rwanda um, just to set up a company there. Um, right. There are a lot of well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are a few companies who are setting up uh, call centers in Rwanda. Whereas right now, you know, you typically see call centers in India and the Philippines. Um, they're trying to take advantage of the low cost of labor, the fact that it's an Anglophone market, um, the fact that you don't really need to ship anything for a call center. Um, there's a lot of new investment coming into Rwanda right now um, that I think is really attributable to uh, the quality of governance. So isn't um, 
Isn't Rwanda historically French speaking? Historically, yes. So um, it so the uh, Rwanda was originally a German colony. Okay. Um, but the Germans never really did anything there. It was German in name only. Yeah. And then after World War One, it became a Belgian trust territory in Africa. Right. And the Belgians came in and they built schools and they started building out some of the infrastructure there and they taught people French. Mm-hmm. And so Rwanda was francophone from independence up until 1994. Um, and the uh, the new government, the uh, the RPF-led government, has been trying to integrate Rwanda more into the global system, which of course requires that, switching over to English. And that's Kagame's government. Yes. And um, 1994 was the the genocide. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so they. Uh, they kicked out the genocide heirs and they formed the new government. And um, the new government has been trying to, again, integrate it more broadly into the global economy. And so the schools are now taught in English, not mm-hmm. French. So all of the young people over there speak English. The older generation tend to speak French, uh, French and Kenya Rwandan, but uh, the younger generation, everyone speaks English. Interesting. Cool. If you don't know French, if you don't know Kenya Rwandan, and you go to Rwanda, you're going to be fine. Everyone, mm-hmm. everyone speaks English. So speaking of 1994, I mean, we're getting close to something like around 25 years since. What are, mm-hmm. what are the lingering effects of that on Rwanda? The lingering effects of this on Rwanda mainly have to do with the fact that 800,000 people were killed right. in a matter of a few months, and that, of course, carries with it significant yeah. scars and baggage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the people who perpetrated that, um, when that actually happened, Rwanda had to implement a new court system based on traditional pre-colonial uh, Rwandan law just to handle the number of cases that were there. Um, so they actually rounded the people up and put them the in people, The people who did all of that, the people who committed those uh, crimes, they have been rounded up and they're, they're in prison. It's um, or, or exiled to other countries, or did they go after them there as well? They, they went out. Uh, they've been pretty aggressive about um, extraditing people right. who, uh, who committed genocide. Similarly, Germany and Israel have been very aggressive about Holocaust, uh, right. about people who perpetrated the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, there's that Netflix on, or there's that documentary on Netflix about uh, Demyanyuk, um, Devil Next Door, I think, can't recall the name. Mm-hmm. But it's very similar. When there's, a, when there's an instance of genocide, you're always very aggressive in going after the perpetrators of that, and Rwanda has been extremely aggressive yeah it's been extremely aggressive in that regard um there was initially a higher hiv rate as a result of some of the actions that occurred during during the genocide um, by the perpetrators but um that's since lowered to a more standard rate um most of the issues now have been resolved again it's 25 years later Mm -hmm. um but I mean, there's a new yeah. generation now that never experienced it. Exactly. So the median age in Rwanda is, it's it's uh, lower than 25 years. I think it's 17 years old right now. Wow. Is the median age in uh, Rwanda? In Uganda, it's 15. Um, so these are these are people who their parents suffered through that, but they've yeah they've never had to deal with that. Rwanda has been peaceful their entire lives. It's been developing. It's been growing extremely rapidly their entire lives. Um, it's been improving every single year that they've been alive. Um, and so I would say for them, there's, well, there's nothing to compare it to. <laughs> right. Right. And, and so 
with Rwanda booming, you mentioned that there's, you know, because there's no port access immediately, that it's services based. Um, so it's high-end agriculture. So when you actually look at um, the Rwandan economy, it is still agrarian. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe about 80% of the population is involved in agriculture of one form or another. Right. Um, Rwanda's primary exports, coffee and tea right there, which are very, very high-value crops. They don't take up that much space. You can pack them in really tightly. Yeah. They don't weigh that much, and you can get a ton of money from it. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some experiments with vanilla as well. Um, and I'd really like to see some more investment in that space. So the, these are crops basically worth shipping by air, which is these are yeah these are air. these are crops that are feasible to ship by air. There's also dried uh, dried fruits as well. Right. Um, so you can actually get a ton of dried fruits for about four thousand dollars, and then after you dry it and throw out all of the waste material. Um, which that'll probably actually reduce the total volume by about an eighth of that. Or rather, I should say a fifth. A fifth is probably closer to it. Um, you can sell a ton of dried fruit for about 24000 here in the U.S., and that's after uh, flying it out to the U.S. So you're looking at 20000 in raw material to get to that and 4000 yeah. in profit for dried fruits. Um, so that that's a fairly popular business over there as well. Right. But you're looking at mainly agriculture in Rwanda, um, that's the main focus of most of the people over there. And now they're spinning up their financial system. They're building exactly. a much better financial system through your project and others, I imagine. They've done that. Um, the government's actually built out a fiber optic network around Kigali. The I was, was going to ask about that. Yeah. So they're trying to attract not only a lot of the financial services, but they're trying to attract so- investment from software companies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Microsoft has set up... Uh, Microsoft spent some money on setting up a... Um, little startup lab slash school over there. Right. Um, there are a lot of uh, VC funds and accelerators that are coming in, or African VC funds and accelerators that are sub- setting up shop in and Kigali. where are they coming from? Around the continent. Yeah. Uh, South Africa, Nigeria mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kenya as well. Um, there are a ton of new people getting into software development there every single day. Uh, tons of people in getting interested in robots, in robotics, and some hardware projects like that, although hardware's, again, a really difficult business to get into there just with the shipping costs. Right. Um, but that does, of course, tie into the software business. Um, the aforementioned call centers setting up there. Um, there's a new medical school that just opened up north of uh, Kigali as well, and that should actually help to turn Rwanda into the medical services center of East Africa as well. So if you, if you need urgent medical care or I should say non-urgent medical care, mm-hmm. fly into Rwanda, you can get, uh, any surgeries done that you might need. You can get all of that done. Um, it's not fully developed yet, but I would expect that within the next few years, you're going to see a lot more, uh, people coming to Rwanda for medical care. Mm-hmm. So and I think the, the doctors are trained locally. Yes. Yes. They're trained locally. There's a, uh, there's a medical school just, uh, a little bit north of uh, a little bit north of Kigali, that just opened up there. What's the current um, expat community in or foreigner community like in in Rwanda? So I'm assuming by that you're ignoring the other Africans that are in. Uh, I mean, because there's yeah, obviously like within Africa within Africa migration, but then there's there's everyone else, including Chinese. Yeah. So most most of the foreigners in Rwanda are other uh, African immigrants who have moved there. But um, I would say 
there's a lot of American missionaries who are in Rwanda. They work yep. for various NGOs, schools, hospitals, churches, groups like that. Um, there is the One Acre Fund, which actually employs a pretty significant number of uh, software developers and other people over there. Um, they're a micro lending group that works with about 800,000 farmers in Rwanda and I believe 1.3 million throughout East Africa. Um, there are people who came over there to set up uh, various service businesses in finance, software, mm-hmm. you name it. Um, there are some Chinese entrepreneurs who came over there to set up construction companies. Um, that's that's really what you're looking at as far as the um, non-African foreigner presence. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So not a lot of uh, Chinese presence on the ground either. Not that much. No, you see, you see some of it there, but... So when you're looking at Africa, it's a con. It it's a fairly large continent. It has yeah, a lot of, of people across the entire continent. There are only about one million Chinese um, okay. Chinese people living there, so you don't really see that many of them, mm-hmm. and they tend to be concentrated in a few areas. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's they're not really there. Really, are not that many. I mean, if they're focused on resource extraction, they're going to be clustered along the coasts generally. Yeah. The mines, the coast, uh, they're involved in the infrastructure projects as well. So a lot of the um, contract labor that's used for, say, road construction, um, rail construction, things like that is Chinese. But they're obviously temp labor. They don't stick I know there are, yeah, I know there are, yeah. I mean, I know there are disagreements with uh, African governments and the Chinese about who is supposed to be doing the labor on those projects. Because the idea is that, you know, the African governments, obviously, I mean, they want investment, but they also want to, you know, employ their their own people. So I know there have been some issues back and forth there there's been some back and forth on that every so often the chinese get it their way every so often the african government gets it their way it goes back and forth yeah yeah but that's um mo- a pretty significant chunk of the chinese labor over there is they're not moving there permanently they're yeah. moving there temporarily they're going over there doing a job and heading back yeah well uh i think that's about covered all our questions and this has been an amazing introduction to to east africa thanks for coming on the podcast sean and uh you know we hope to hear more about your adventures thank you it was a pleasure to be here yeah i hope you hope your adventure goes well thanks for coming on fingers crossed yeah Yeah. (laughs) thanks thank you